Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Nice to see you. I'm uh, Glenn Barnes, another one of the pastors here, and so glad you are together uh, with us this morning. Hey, we're going to jump into our message in just a little bit, but we want to dismiss kids to children's church. So grade six and down, we've got a special program for you, and you guys can head out there. So we love all our children's staff putting together a great uh, morning for them. Hey, as our kids are on the way to, um, before we jump into the message, I want to take a moment and just talk a little bit about something we've been talking about for a few weeks and we always talk about at Christmas time um, because I love Christmas. I love everything about Christmas. I love the trees. I love the lights. I love the presents. I love the food. I love all of that stuff. And yet if we're not careful, it's really easy for us to kind of miss the heart of Christmas, which of course is uh, the story of our Savior uh, coming for us. And so every year as a church for the last dozen years, uh, we have participated in what we call the Advent Conspiracy. It's an attempt to kind of push back some of the commercialism of Christmas and really focus on the heart of Christ, uh, specifically through generosity. So each year, we choose a different project or need around the world. And this year, um, we've been telling you we've chosen the very important need right here in our community of focusing on youth mental health. In fact, I don't know if you saw the Surgeon General came out just this week and said that this is a national crisis. Um, We're thankful that they did that, but many of us said, no, duh, we've been seeing this um, for a long time. And so um, our idea is to raise funds that are going to allow us uh, to begin to make some interventions, specifically for our teenagers. So there's a physical component, and we actually had our first uh, Friday Night Lights basketball event just this last Friday. Um, So there's a physical component. There is a training component where we're going to be working with both teenagers to train them as well as to train kind of uh, student leaders in this area for parents, caregivers, grandparents. There's a a real significant training component. And then we're working with uh, 180 Counseling to help provide them some long-term counseling space. They're very impacted right now, and so we want to help them find a permanent counseling center uh, to meet some of their needs here. So um, we're partnering with a number of different organizations. Uh, One of those is 180 Counseling. Um, We would have loved to have Allison McGregor here with us. Allison had knee surgery uh, this week because she tore her ACL doing karate with her kids. And so um, I sat down with her before she went into her surgery. And, uh, and so let's take a look at a little video that Allison made for us. All right. Hey, we are here with Allison McGregor. Allison is the co-director of 180 um, Programs and is the founder and director of 180 Counseling and Resources, which uh, has been making a big impact mm-hmm. um, with um, students and families for a number of years. Um, and we're so excited to be partnering with you uh, through Advent Conspiracy. So Allison, maybe tell us a little bit, some of what you and your team are facing seen as you're interacting with teenagers in our community these days? Yeah, thank you. We have nine therapists who are on 16 different school campuses, as well as uh, meeting with individuals and families at the teen center, so right next door. And we are seeing an increasing number of students who are suffering with depression and anxiety and suicidal ideation. And a lot of those students have suffered some sort of trauma in the past. So we're, um, it's, I think COVID has really increased a lot of those symptoms as we're all a bit on edge. So, yeah. Yeah. So without a doubt, the crisis seems to just be ramping up. Mm -hmm. And so you guys have been doing a great job already. But as you think about kind of going to that next level with some of these Advent Conspiracy projects, what are you kind of most excited about um, to see um, our community engaged on these issues? Yeah, our team is really excited about empowering community members at large and in particular 
uh, followers of Jesus to see the students as the whole person. So we're looking at you know, behavior patterns, where, they're, where they've come from, their families, their neighborhoods. So our hope is really to, to do a conference together where uh, we are able to educate community members at large and um, followers of Jesus to see the mental health needs, to have education about them, and then to have an idea of how to refer these students where they might get the most help, um, but then also have practical skills and tools on what they can do in the moment to work with whether it's their son or daughter or grandchild or somebody in their youth group or in their classroom. So we're really excited about really engaging and preparing um, like the frontline workers across our community. Yeah. yeah. So that education piece is really important, both for um, parents, adults, and for students. Um, but the other thing, Allison, that we know is um, your individual and some of your group counseling that you do on site mm-hmm. um, is really impacted. And yes. so you guys need more space. Yes. We have been, all through COVID, when the need really ramped up, we were using offices, several of us. Um, you know, using the same office throughout the day. We had people doing counseling in the kitchen and the, <laughs> in the 180 mobile unit. And that is not a great long-term plan. And so our hope as the need increases, as we have good therapists, um, as we have the opportunity to hire more, we're seeing tons of students, but at each school site, the waiting list is very long. So the need is... Um, it's undeniable. Well, without a doubt, the need is great. And so we're so grateful that you are already making an impact. We look forward to partnering with you to see that even increase. Um, hey, Allison, before we wrap up, um, if you just had maybe one word of maybe encouragement and, and advice or hope to maybe families that are facing some of these issues right there in their, their mm-hmm. home, because it's, it's so common for so many of us, what kind of word of encouragement would you have? Yeah, I would encourage parents and caregivers and grandparents to... Um, to not be nervous to engage, to go to yeah. the next level, to to go past the surfacey conversation, which is very easy to do, it's like at a holiday gathering, but to go the, to the next question, to ask how people are, how, how your son or daughter, how they're doing, what they're experiencing, what they're afraid of. And, um, and don't be afraid to normalize your own fears and your own worries and your own, when you were a teenager, really, um, be present with your son or daughter, grandchild in their in their moment. So I think it's really just connect, go be go deeper, be vulnerable. That's the first step in bringing real hope. All right, well, there you go. Hey, so glad to get a chance to hear from Allison. Um, let me just remind you, you can give towards the Advent Conspiracy in all the ways you can normally give. You can do that online. Be sure to click Advent Conspiracy. Um, you can give uh, today at the end of the service. We also have the Advent Conspiracy table right by the entrance to the church, so you can stop by, uh, talk to some people, get some information um, there, and and, uh, and give at that place. I, I've also mentioned a couple times that we had a very generous a matching gift of $50,000. And so the first $50,000 that First Baptist gives um, will be matched. And so we really encourage um, as a church to meet that goal and to do that. And so um, I encourage you to be generous uh, with that as we try to go after that need. All right. Well, let's turn the corner a little bit. Uh, grab your message notes. Grab your Bible. We're going to be in the book of First John um, because today is the third Sunday of Advent. 
And today's theme is we believe in real love. As Steve said, we want to talk about uh, real love. Now, it seems that talking about love, especially at Christmas time for a pastor, um, should be a relatively easy task to accomplish, right? Um, after all, the Bible says a great deal about love. We know that the very character of, of God is, is filled with love. We know that the, the historic Christian faith is all about love. So it should be easy to talk about. And yet the reality is, here in 2021, it just seems to me that there's a growing confusion about what real love is all about. In fact, just this week, as I was thinking about this, I thought I'd just kind of pay attention to what different people said about love. And just this week, I heard all kinds of different things about love. Like I heard one uh, person say that she loves fajitas. I heard, I love my kids. I love Steph Curry which was actually mine. I said that one. Um, I heard I love my dog. I love shopping online. I love God. I love my husband. I love Christmas and I love tacos. And I think all of those mean slightly different things, right? Hopefully you love tacos and your husband slightly differently because can you really love your husband that much? I mean, you know. But someone said it like this, love has become kind of a junk drawer word. Uh, you know, the, the junk drawer where you just can throw stuff uh, so casually or, or mindlessly. The junk drawer is where you throw that extra stuff. You're just not sure what to do that. It all just goes right in there. In fact, at our house, uh, the junk drawer in our kitchen got so full that it literally came off the tracks because we just had thrown so much stuff in there. Um, and that's how love can be sometimes because we use the L word so casually and it can mean so many different things. In fact, if you think about it, it was the Beatles that told us all you need is love, right? Okay, so we're all we need is love. But then the Supremes came along and they said, well, stop in the name of love. And then Tina Turner said, well, what's love got to do with it? Beyonce says she's crazy in love. Stevie Wonder just called to say, I love you. Um, Bon Jovi says you give love a bad name. And on and on, you could go with that for days. So you could see why it could get a little bit uh, confusing. Even the language of the Bible, while it's, of course, very helpful, um, at the time that the New Testament was written, there were still a variety of different words that could have been used to, to translate what we in English call love. So some of those words at the time of the writing of the New Testament is there is the Greek word eros. Eros refers more to like a romantic kind of love. There is storge. Storge is a family love between, say, a parent and a child or even between uh, siblings. There's kind of this family uh, love. There's phileo, which is a, a friendship love. Like you're, you're familiar with Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the city of, of brotherly love. And then there is this word called agape. Agape is this hard to define ideal that Jesus and his earliest followers adopted because it speaks of something deeper. It speaks of a, a sacrificial love, something that's not based on a, a transaction and a give and take. It's not contingent on feelings. It's not contingent on circumstances or what you can do for me. In fact, in John chapter 13, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, I'm going to give you a whole new commandment. After all the commandments in the past, he says, I'm going to give you a new one. And the new one is this. People are going to know that you're my disciple by the way that you love one another, the way you agape one another. So if you want to write in your notes a definition of this agape love, you could write this. Agape is unconditionally, 
unconditionally seeking the well-being of another before yourself. And so that's a definition of agape. But here's my premise about agape and about real love, which is that real love is not something you learn about by definition, right? It's something that you learn about by demonstration. It's by demonstration, not definition. And this is usually true with love. They always say that more is caught than is taught about love. You don't say, let me teach you how much I love you. You, you demonstrate it. You show that love. And that's true of God's real love for us. In fact, that's not just my premise. That's the premise that John brings to us in 1 John uh, chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. And that's kind of our text for the morning. We already heard it read this uh, morning during the lighting of the Advent candle. I love that. Great reading and, and prayer. But our passage, 1 John 4, verses 9 through 12, and let me just read it, and then we'll talk about it. It says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if you love, if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. That's a, a great text, tons of that in, in 1 John, which was written uh, by an elderly John the Apostle. John was certainly the last of the living apostles. He may have just even been the last living apostle at the time that he wrote this. And what's interesting about John is John had literally been on the receiving end of this kind of agape, this real love from Jesus himself. In fact, John's got this clever little nickname for himself. We talk about it every once in a while. You remember what John calls himself? He says, I am the disciple that Jesus loved. That's how he identifies himself. So in that little passage that we just read there, I count at least five observations about real love. And I just want to walk through these together, starting with this first one, which is that real love takes the first step. It takes the first step. Because I don't know if you've ever had a relationship where you wait for the other person to go first and to take that first step, right? You, you want them to be the one that reaches out. You want them to be the one that makes the first call. You want them to be the one that makes the first move. But real love actually swallows our pride and says, I'll go first. I'll take that first step. And our relationship with God and in our relationship with God, he is the initiator of love. He is the one who, who takes that first step. In fact, God's love that initiates itself all but blows the Apostle Paul's theological circuits. Remember, we studied the book of Romans this year. And at the heart of, of Paul's argument in Romans about the gospel is this truth in Romans chapter 5. It says, God demonstrates his love for us. Again, there he shows it. He doesn't tell us about it. He demonstrates it while we were still sinners that he died for us. And if you read around at that same point, Paul makes the point in a number of different ways to say this is extraordinary that God would do this. He says occasionally there might be some person who is very sacrificial and would give their life for like a, a, a very righteous person, a heroic person, someone who, who really deserves it. But Paul says, no, while we were sinners, while we didn't deserve it, while we couldn't earn it, while there was nothing we could do about it, God took the first step. The key word in our passage from 1 John 4 is this. He sent his one and only son. He sent his one and only son 
into the world. Um, Theologians call this sending incarnation. Incarnation. It's from the Latin word carne, which means flesh. So incarnation is to take on flesh. Um, I sometimes remember that by carne asada, um, but that's just me. Um, And now we're all hungry for lunch. But incarnation is taking on flesh. And I looked around at a few different theology books and stuff, and I came back to this just trusty old definition in the Life Application Study Bible, great study Bible. And it says this about the incarnation. It says, the incarnation was the act of the preexistent Son of God, voluntarily assuming a human body and human nature. Without ceasing to be God, he became a human being, the man called Jesus. He did not give up his deity to become a human, but he set aside the right to his glory and power. In submission to his Father's will, Christ limited his power and knowledge. Jesus of Nazareth was subject to place, time, and many other human limitations. And so Jesus takes the first step, and that demonstrates what real love is. The next thing we see Paul or John get to is that real love pays a costly price. He was willing to pay a costly price. The the key phrase here that we need to be aware of is he doesn't just send something. He doesn't just send a, a nice note. He doesn't send a book. He doesn't send any of this other stuff. He sends his one and only son, the most costly gift that there is. You know, every year, I don't know about every year, but often at Christmas time, there is like a, a big, real popular present, a real popular toy or something like that. Um, and everybody wants to get this gift. So this actually started, you could trace kind of the beginning of this. It went back to 1983 when this little guy was the it toy. Did anybody, what is that right there? That's a Cabbage Patch. Did anybody get a Cabbage Patch doll as a kid? Wow, aren't you lucky? Someone really loved you. Anybody give a Cabbage Patch doll? So the deal was, uh, if you know the story, um, they became this really popular uh, gift, and you had the infamous 1983 Cabbage Patch Smackdown that actually kind of culminated at a store in Pennsylvania where there was a run on these things, and the store manager of, I think, Toys R Us actually took an aluminum bat to keep back the parents who are charging after this toy. To this date, they've sold 100 million of these things. You can actually still buy one on eBay today. I saw them selling for like 3,000 bucks. I couldn't believe it. Um, Everybody loved it. Well, years went by, and in 1996, this was the it toy. You guys remember this little guy right here? Yeah, Tickle Me Elmo, right? Elmo is this great little character from Sesame Street to teach children about kindness and sharing and those kind of things. Well, in 1996, in Canada, a Walmart clerk was trampled by 300 customers because he was holding one of these little precious prizes, right? They just stormed him because there was only one and they trampled over him. The clerk suffered a broken rib and a concussion because parents just had to have that toy. In 2005, it was the Xbox 360. People camped out for this. People fought for it. They had to have the Xbox 360. In 2014, everybody wanted something from Frozen, right? That was kind of a big deal. I'm just, let it go. Let it go. You don't have to have those. (laughs) Just came to me. Um, Last year, the number one toy was all things Baby Yoda, right? Everybody had to have, but at least because there was COVID, people weren't going in stores and fighting. They were fighting online for this. Um, 
But as you think about this and you think about big mobs of people fighting for toys and, and, you know, going after these things, it's very disturbing. Don't get me wrong. But in a strange way, it speaks to how much parents are willing to do and pay almost anything to have some sort of gift that they believe is going to demonstrate their love for that child. Something that's going to say, I love you. And God shows us this real agape kind of love by sending the most costly gift of all, his son, Jesus Christ. Can you even imagine why? Because of his love for us. I, I saw one writer say this. He said, one, he said, if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If God had a wallet, your photo would be in it. He sends you flowers every spring and sunrise every morning. Whenever you want to talk to him, he'll listen. He can live anywhere in the universe and he chose your heart. And this Christmas gift that he sends you in Bethlehem, face it, friends, he is crazy about you. And you see, he takes the first step and he pays the costliest price. But not only that, love also goes the greatest distance. Love goes the greatest distance. The key phrase in this little verse we're working our, our way through from 1 John 4, 9 is this. Not only did he send his son, uh, his one and only son, but where did he send him? Into the world. That's where he came, into the world. And you know, I don't think any of us will ever be able to really fathom the distance that Christ covered to move from the glory of heaven to the darkness and to the trouble of earth, right? The one who had only known the glory of heaven was born, and not even to earthly privilege, but was born to a peasant. His first sight was not the throne room. His first sight was a, a cave, because there was no room for him even to be born in the inn. His first smell was not the, the incense wafting up to him in, in worship. His first smell was what? A stinky cattle and sheep. You know, I don't even think that's a Christmas fragrance you could buy, but that's the original Christmas fragrance. The one who spread out the heavens, the one who we're told holds the, the seas in the palm of his hand, now had to reach out his hands to get it around his, his father's finger, his earthly father's finger. He was dependent on human parents, you guys, human parents to change his diapers, to wipe his nose, to teach him to speak, to teach him to read, to teach him a trade and to work. God had a belly button, if you could imagine that. You know, I'm not super proud of this next um, example, but maybe it'll help um, you because I don't really think of myself as a, a cat person. In fact, I'm, I'm not really a cat person, but um, uh, a couple years ago or a while ago, we got a cat, and uh, my wife, Jannie, is apparently a cat person, right? She loves um, this cat, and so that's, that's great. And so um, this cat is like an indoor-outdoor cat, sometimes indoor, sometimes out, outside. And so not that long ago, we decided that we needed to get a, a cat door put in. And so we put in this cat door, opening the outside to the inside to the outside of the house, and um, that was great. The only problem was this cat door, um, obviously it comes with this little flap, right? You have to go through this flap to go from the inside to the outside. It's simple. It's very intuitive. Any dog could figure it out in like a second, but this cat could not figure out how to go through the door that we just went to all this trouble to put in. And so we're like, no, go through it this way. And then let me just remind you, Janie and I are both grown adults, um, and all of a sudden we find ourselves on our hands and knees 
by the cat door saying, go this way, you know, see, push your paw like this. Because we knew that if he could just figure it out, what an amazing world there was for him on the other side. If you could just go this way, you know, if we could just show you how to do it. And I thought if I could only speak cat, if I could only become a cat, I could show him how to do this. And obviously that's what God does for us. He says, oh, there's so much more. I've created you for so much more. I want to show you the way. I want you to see the way. And so what does he do? He becomes a man, not just to speak our language, but to show us. You see, love goes the greatest distance. By the way, if a cat story uh, doesn't clear it up for you, I I understand. Um, But there's actually a theological term for this. The theological term is kenosis. Kenosis speaks of emptying of something. Uh, Kenosis is the Greek word. It means to empty. It comes primarily from Philippians chapter 2, where Paul tells us this about Jesus. It says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Kenosis. He emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. You see, kenosis speaks to the cost that was paid. God stepped from the throne, took off his robe of light, and put on skin. The one who the angels sang, worthy is the, the, the worthy and honor, of receiving honor and glory and power, decides to enter into the womb of Mary of Nazareth, if you can even imagine. So we would know how far love goes. Well, I think John is making the point of how different God's love is from our love. It's not that humans are incapable of love. We're capable of, of, of great love. But even our best attempts at love sometimes fall short of, of the kind of, of love that, that God shows, right? And, and so he keeps going with this argument. And he says, see, God's love is, is so much different than ours. It, it takes the first step. It pays a costly price. It goes the greatest dif- distance. Real love, he says, demonstrates real grace. And the deal with grace, grace literally means I get something that I don't deserve. And while I don't deserve God's love, he gives it to me anyways. Verse 10 of our passage says this, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You know, human love tends to be what's in it for me, right? We're most focused, you know, even at our best, we're kind of focused on ourselves. I wrote down a few words about that. Human love tends to be conditional, it's reciprocal, it's capricious, it's transactional. I wrote some words about God's love. It's selfless. It's steady, it's immovable, and it's at the very heart of his nature. I mentioned to you, um, I've been reading this great book called Gentle and Lowly. Gentle and Lowly, uh, the subtitle is The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. Um, So it's perfect for a guy like me. Um, We actually have a copy of this for you. Um, It's not exactly a Christmas book, but um, I've been loving reading it. And at the Advent Conspiracy Table, stop by and pick one of these up, especially if you would um, read it. And let me just share with you a passage that really struck me as I was reading it this week. It's a, about this grace. And it says, uh, it says, uh, Jesus didn't die for us once we became strong. Jesus didn't die for us once we started to overcome our sinfulness. God didn't reconcile himself to us once we became friendly towards him. And then it says this, God didn't meet us halfway. He refused to hold back. 
to be cautious, assessing our worth. That is not his heart. He and the son took the initiative on terms of grace and grace alone in defiance of what we deserved. When we, despite our smiles and civility, were running from God as fast as we could, building our own little kingdoms, loving our own glory, lapping up the fraudulent pleasures of the world, repulsed by the beauty of God and shutting up our ears at his calls to come home. It was then in the hollowed out horror of that revolting existence that the prince of heaven bade his adoring angels farewell. And then uh, it was then that he put himself into the murderer's hands of these very rebels in a divine strategy planned for eternity past to rinse muddy sinners clean and to hug them into his own heart despite their squirmy attempt to get free and scrub ourselves clean. Christ went down to death voluntarily endurance of an unutterable anguish while we applauded. We couldn't have cared less. We were weak, sinners, enemies, and God loves us anyways because this agape real kind of love demonstrates real grace. All right. Everybody good? Feel like we we got this? Because we need to talk a a little bit more about this. Um, So far, you could say this message is kind of a love fest, and and it really is. Um, And I need you to know that I believe every single word of what we've talked about here this morning. But if we only talk about this component of love, we're also missing a very significant truth about God's love. And so I, I want to talk about something, and this part's a lot less popular. It's a lot less talked about, but it's so important if we're really going to grasp what real love is. Um, and uh, John's description of how God demonstrates real love is this unpopular truth. God's real love cares enough to make us better. God's real love cares enough to make us better. Another way you could say that is his real love cares enough to change me to make me more like him, to get rid of the stuff in my life that is not pointing me towards him. Steve said last week, and it's just worth saying again, he says, it's okay to not be okay, right? No matter what you're going through, you're in the right place to be here, to come before Christ. It's okay to not be okay. But when we encounter real love, it changes us. And so it's not okay to just stay that way. Think about it like this. If someone has the ability to help you, If someone has the ability for for you to heal or to improve your situation or to grow you in your character and they don't do those things, it begs the question, is that person even loving, right? Is that even love? You see, we live in this junk drawer day of, of love. When people say the litmus test of love is this concept of, of tolerance and just acceptance of any and every behavior. Now, I want to be very clear here because tolerance is, is a good thing to show kindness and empathy and understanding to someone that's going through something different from me or, or struggling with something or just is different from me in, in another way. That's, that's a good thing. But if by tolerance we mean that God just turns a blind eye or even celebrates some sin or some behavior that is not God's best for me, then friends, that's not love. You could actually make a pretty good case that that is one of the most hateful things that a person could do to let something that is not in in God's best for you to just go on. People love the expression, love is love. And I I like the sentiment behind it um, because it seems very kind. But if I love things that are not good for me and then 
just let it go after, uh, let me just go after those things unchecked, it's not love. So I love chocolate chip cookies. I had one of those like crumble chocolate chip cookies this week. Holy smokes, those things are delicious. Um, But if I had a whole box of chocolate chip cookies in front of me and I went on this chocolate chip cookie bender and and ate the whole box, I think there would be some people that would would intervene and say, hey, Glenn, that's, that's not God's best for you. And as I think about my life, I'm at a place in life where I want to love God with everything I've got. I'm at a place where I want to love him with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want to be his disciple. I want to love my wife the, the, the best that I can. I want to love my family the best that I can. I want to shepherd this, this church to the best of my ability. I want to, I want to be a part of the, the mission of God. I want, to, I want to be compassionate. I want all these things, all this godly character. And I, I've let people know that about me. So if I desire those things, and then suddenly I find my life drifting from those things or going in an opposite direction from them, I need loving people to come alongside and and not be a jerk to me and not be mean about it or judgmental about it, but with the love of Christ to come alongside and say, look, there's another way. There's a better way. And when I think about God's love for me, that's what he did for me. He came and he said, look, there's something better on the other side. How do we know this? Look at from our passage. How do we know that God's love makes us better? Look at a couple phrases in this passage that we're talking about. Verse 9, we've talked about that he sent his only son into the world. Why? So that we might live through him. God did this so that we might live. And the same idea of living is the same concept of eternal life, that I was made for eternity. I was made to be in relationship with God, not just on this earth, but forever. Because I could live on this life, a, a, a full life. I could live to be 60, 70, 80, 100 years old, but that's still a blink of the eye compared to eternity. And I was made for eternity. And so God says, I, I want you to have life, including this eternal life. But it's not just, I want to believe and go to heaven one day when I die. Because this is the same word that's used of abundant life in the here and now. Jesus says, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. And the way we have life to the full, one of the key ways is he begins to shape us to be more like his son. That means he chips some of the the sin away from me. That means he, he calls me to something better, to something pure. Because God's love is real enough to call me to something better. He has life for me. And for him to just let me go on missing the mark that he had for me, that would not be very loving. In fact, it would be quite hateful. Second thing, how do we know that, that, that God doesn't just kind of in the name of tolerance turn a blind eye to, to sin? Because we'd love that to be the case. We'd love God to always just say, hey, no problem. You do you. Look at the mission of Jesus himself in verse 10. This is love Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a what? An atoning sacrifice for our sins. So clearly sin is a big deal. God sent Jesus to atone for them. To atone, it's kind of a weird word. It just literally means that by Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, that the wrath of God that I deserve has been appeased. The punishment that I deserve has been paid for. 
And some of you might be here, whether you're in the room or you're watching online or in the gym or wherever you are, and you'd be like, hold up a second. I thought we were talking about love, and I thought we were talking about Christmas love. How did all of a sudden we start to talk about sin and wrath and and punishment? That seems so different from the way that I want to think about love. But that's because we operate with a junk drawer kind of love, kind of a thin, flimsy kind of love that won't last the test when God's love is deeper and pure and it takes the first step and it pays the highest price and it loves us enough to change us and to make us better. In fact, as I think about the most loving thing that God has ever done for me is that he saw a guy like me who was lost in sin on a pathway to destruction away from the abundant and eternal life that he had for me. And he demonstrated his love by becoming a man so that I could understand him. And he could speak my language and I could see the way. And he could say to me, look, there's a better way. Come this way. There's so much more on the other side, right? And, and that's the most loving thing that Christ has done. He may say, it's a, it's a, it feels like a narrow way. It, it might be hard. Not everybody's going to choose that way, but follow me. And that is love. And so that brings us this morning to the so what part of our message, the so what part of our message. Fortunately, in the way this passage lays itself out, um, John puts kind of the so what cookies on the bottom shelf, if you will. Apparently, I've got cookies on the mind. Um, But uh, this is the so what. And he just says it real clear. He says, dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his life is made complete in us. And so the first kind of so what or the first takeaway from all this talk about God's real love and what that means for us is the kind of love that we have received from God. We are now called as his children, as his sons and daughters, to show that kind of love to other people. So that means in your relationships, when it comes to love, you go first. You take that first step. You make that what feels like an awkward call or that awkward initiation because The real love that God shows to us is one that initiates, doesn't wait to get something first. In fact, it pays a costly price. It does kind of whatever it it takes. If there's sacrifice involved, if there's difficulty involved, it goes the, the, the greatest distance. He doesn't just wait for it to be easy and convenient. And it shows grace and compassion to others. So the most obvious so what is God's loved us, and so we show that kind of love to other people. And can I, I say this all the time, but our world is, is dying for this love. And unfortunately, for uh, too many reasons to talk about right now, the church is not known for showing this kind of love lately. And that's not okay. That's not okay. This is the kind of love that we are called to show to our world. And they will have to lock the doors to keep people away when that happens because that kind of love is so different and is so beautiful. So that's the first so what. We show the kind of love that we've received from God. The second kind of of so what is one that's actually not explicitly in our passage. You see it kind of throughout all of of 1 John and and really throughout all of the New Testament. And, And as I think about our response to God's love, my thing is we need to let God's unconditional love lead us to a sense of worship and to a sense of wonder and awe. When we see Christ for who he is, 
We don't just say, oh, that's, I've heard that story before, but we let it sink into our heart and fill us with wonder and awe. That's what the first advent was all about, right? We talk about advent as the arrival, that, that first advent when Christ was born in Bethlehem. Shepherds hear this story and, and they come and, and what do they do? They bow down and they worship him. And it says that they were filled with wonder and awe. And then there's a star in the sky and, and some people see this star. They're not even Jews. They're from the east and they come and they come a long distance. They come a long ways. They, they bring costly gifts. And when they arrive, they give these gifts and they bow down and they worship him. Christmas should always cause us to be filled with worship and wonder. That's what we see in the first advent. But we've been saying all along in this advent uh, season that it's not just about the first arrival of Christ, but we anticipate now the second arrival of Christ when he comes not as a baby in a manger, but as a great and conquering king. And worship and wonder is to be attached to that as well. In fact, one of my favorite scenes in the book of Revelation where some of this begins to be unpacked, that that second arrival of Christ, is the same Apostle John who we've just been reading here. The same Apostle John is given a, a vision, and it's this apocalyptic vision filled with all kinds of different language and images and all these kind of things. And at the very beginning of this vision, John looks around and, and he says, I wept and I wept because I looked around and there's this scroll. And this scroll, he knows, holds the information that he wants to know. It's got everything that, that, that he's dying to know. But he weeps and weeps because he looks at this scroll and he says, I don't see anybody in this vision that is worthy to unroll this scroll and show me what's in it. And he cries and he cries, but then he must look away and he looks back. And to his surprise, he sees one who is worthy. He sees the lion from the tribe of Judah. And his heart begins to be filled with worship and wonder. And then I don't know how it works, but he looks away for a moment or whatever it is, and he looks back, and this time he doesn't see the lion from the tribe of Judah, but he sees one who is like a lamb who had been slain. And the point is, is that the lion that from the tribe of Judah, this great conquering king, earned that worthiness through his sacrificial love by being the lamb of God in our place. And they begin to rejoice because now there's someone who's worthy to open the scroll. And the angels and the saints and the people bow down and they cry out, worthy is the lamb to receive glory and honor and power. And that's what God's love should draw us to, to that kind of worship. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your message of love. Thank you so much, God, that you didn't just tell us about love. You didn't just give us a book about love, but you showed us love in your son, Jesus Christ. And so I pray for myself and for my friends here today, Lord, as we're trying to put this into practice, we're trying to just understand it and, and, and take it in. We're trying to be people of love and we're trying to be people that worship and honor you in the way that you deserve. Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength and the courage to allow your real love to begin to chip away and make us more like your son and draw us into a deeper worship. You, God, you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name.